Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books and Gender Studies. I am the co-host of the channel, Lillian Barger. Today, my conversation is with Amy Orison, Associate Professor of Journalism and Media Studies at Fordham University and former editor at Working Woman and Ms. Magazines. We will discuss her most recent biography, Crystal Eastman, A Revolutionary Life, published by Oxford University Press. Eastman was a women's rights activist, labor lawyer, radical feminist, writer, and co-founder of what became the Civil Liberties Union. Her life was shaped by key relationships, including with her mother, Anise Ford Eastman, and a close relationship with her brother, Max Eastman, editor of the socialist magazine, The Masses. Subsequently, with her brother, they would launch The Liberator. Eastman spoke and wrote about a variety of social and political problems and was threatened by censorship and economic hardship. One of our chief concerns was how women could combine meaningful work with family based on egalitarian ideals of independence and freedom. She attempted to live out her feminist ideals by redefining her marriage, motherhood, and career. Crystal Eastman offers a vivid portrait of a modern feminist navigating the hazards of private and public life as it unfolded in the progressive era. Here is my conversation with Amy Orison. Let me introduce you to the author, Amy Aronson. Hello, Amy. Hi, how you doing? Welcome to the show, and thank you for sharing your thoughts with our audience. First, thank you. Before we get into the book, I want to know a little bit about you and your background and how you came to write Crystal Eastman, A Revolutionary Life. Well, actually, I have been working on this book on, to one degree or other for over 20 years now. Um, the first time I, I came in contact with Crystal Eastman was when I was doing the research for my dissertation proposal in graduate school. Um, and I bumped into a few of her essays uh, about feminism. And they really, really reached me. They really seemed so contemporary. Um, I, I loved her candor. I, you know, I obviously I related to her point of view. I thought her ideas um, were just incredible incredibly relevant and refreshing. Um, But I didn't end up writing my dissertation uh, on a period, a historical period, that would allow me to actually incorporate her into that work. Um, So I went on, I wrote my dissertation, I, you know, I completed my degree. Um, I then uh, uh, took some time away from academia. I worked as a magazine editor um, for a number of years, and then I returned um, to academia in 2006, partly because I knew that it would give me the chance to actually return to the work on Crystal Eastman, to actually return to her. Over all of those years and those, you know, those kind of different twists and turns in my professional life, I, I just never forgot her. You know, she, it, I feel today like she, she didn't let me go. There was some way in which she was just this, this voice kind of calling ahead of herself uh, into the era in which I lived and into the questions that I had um, as a feminist, um, particularly as a feminist. Um, and so when I got the chance, I, um, I, you know, I dived into the research and, and the result uh, some years later um, is this book. 
Now, let's talk about, now get to Eastman, uh, her family. Let's talk about her family of origin. What was their place in American society generally? You know, what are their roots? Their roots uh, were, uh, Crystal grew up in uh, in upstate New York, uh, in, in Elmira, uh, for most of her life. You know, she sort of hails from Elmira or New York in the kind of uh, northern tier. Um, but she was the daughter of two congregational ministers. Uh, and um, much of her early life was uh, quite itinerant. Um, her father moved from parish to parish. Uh, and ultimately, they only gained stability when, um, after her father uh, had, you know, suffered some illness, her mother uh, actually was ordained. Uh, Annis Ford Eastman was her mother's name, and she um, was the first woman ordained as a congregational minister in the state of New York. Um, and she became really the breadwinner of the family. Um, she became the co-pastor at um, the Park Church uh, in Elmira. That's how they ended up there. Quite a quite a well-known, um, uh, very uh, sort of uh, abolitionist, uh, progressive uh, congregation. Um, and, uh, so they, they lived in a very vibrant intellectual, moral, and political community, um, but they were not, uh, particularly well off. In fact, they were not well off at all. Um, a lot of Crystal's early letters are about saving money and recycling clothing and, um, you know, trying to, uh, make ends meet. And early on in her career, in fact, the, you know, the, um, the need for a job, the need for work, um, when, uh, she had become a lawyer and, uh, had a hard time finding a job, uh, in, uh, 1908, uh, as a, as a woman lawyer, um, led her to the path that she ultimately took, um, because she had to nail down some kind of employment. Um, and she ended up, um, taking the job, uh, working for the Pittsburgh survey and doing other kinds of work outside of the law. Okay. I want to talk about Anais Ford Eastman, her mother, who was very large in the narrative. Uh, she's very prominent in her life, very prominent, particularly in her early years. She's an unconventional woman, and not only because she's a, a minister and she's preaching, but she's also has some vanguard ideas. Her mother has some really interesting ideas that she tried to live out that were very different from like the norm. So can you talk a little bit about uh, Anise and her, her ideas and how she stands out? Yes. Um, Crystal's relationship with her mother was uh, the most important uh, in her life. Um, and her mother um, was, you know, a compelling personality um, in so many ways, um, politically, uh, as well as interpersonally, socially. Um, Annis Ford Eastman lived, modeled a kind of uh, feminist woman's life that Crystal herself uh, dreamed of, of living and tried very hard to live uh, in her own life in a, you know, in a very different time. Um, in fact, the last article that, that Crystal ever wrote in her life um, begins with the idea that you know, her own story is her mother's story. She starts that article, uh, published in The Nation in 1927, just a few months before uh, Crystal died, with the line, the story of my life is the story of my mother. Um, Annis uh, did a lot, uh, um, you know, talked a lot and worked a lot and modeled a lot to have a feminist household. Um, and that meant that uh, chores were shared um, between Crystal and her brothers, um, more or less equally. There were no, you know, w uh, boys chores and girls chores, but um, Crystal too took a turn uh, chopping wood 
you know, uh, as well as making beds and preparing meals, uh, as did her brothers also do work inside the household on a rotating schedule. Um, she also pioneered a lot of kind of collectivist uh, ideas to live uh, in a community that would ultimately um, remove the you know, overwhelming responsibilities of housekeeping from the shoulders of women. Um, uh, a little bit in Elmira, in their kind of regular life, their day-to-day life, uh, but in the summers particularly, they had a, a summer cottage um, upstate on Lake Seneca um, in Glenora, New York. And um, they, they, they bought property and lived amongst uh, a group of friends, uh, each of whom had their own small cottage, and then they had you know, collective spaces to eat um, and gather together. And they that, shared. That was really interesting. That was really interesting to me. Yes, it is really interesting. Um, uh, they, you know, they shared the the tasks of housekeeping and meal preparation during the summer, so that you know every um, every family, but you know, it turned out to be most of the time every woman had you know maybe one or two um, weeks of housekeeping the entire summer, and they all you know collectively um, uh, ate together, enjoyed you know enjoyed the free time together, and were able to. Pursue Pursue other interests of theirs. Um, a lot of this was modeled on some of the early, um, uh, you know, kind of collectivist um, Christian uh, traditions. Uh, but also, uh, Annis Eastman and later Crystal uh, were were very close uh, with Charlotte Perkins Gilman, and you know, it was Gilman who kind of interjected uh, into these uh, broader, you know, Christian collectivist paradigms um, the idea of you know a, a feminist <laughs> angle, um, whereby you know, it would be women who would be freed from housekeeping in order to pursue their other interests, in order to pursue other relationships, in order to have freedom to do what they wanted with their time. Now, her father, Samuel Elijah Eastman, is pretty much a shadow figure in in the book and in her life. He doesn't seem to have much influence uh, in the family or in life. Can you talk a little bit about him and what happened to him and his temperament? Was it a temperament thing or something else? Yeah. Samuel Eastman, her father, is a very, very interesting character. Um, you are so right that he was quite marginal in the household, quite marginal in the family. Um, and, uh, you know, this is mainly because uh, Annis Eastman wanted that way. Crystal, Crystal's mother... Um, you know, uh, struggled. Uh, Max Eastman recalls that you know Chris, that Crystal's mother struggled with um, her sex life, um, and um, after the uh, after Max was born, her fourth child, um, as far as we know, they never uh, uh, shared a bed together again. Crystal's mother and father, um, and um, she really you know kind of pushed him to the margins of the household, the margins of the family unit. Um, was very much the center of the home um, and made it a very female-centric, uh, uh, female-centered um, kind of culture inside their their house. Um, and uh, part of that had to do with their interpersonal dynamics, the possibility that uh, Annis Eastman may have been lesbian. I, you know, I don't have any direct evidence that that, um, you know, of, of any, uh, you know, same-sex sexual activity, but um, certainly her attitudes about her husband 
um, and her attitudes about uh, about sex um, as Max recant recounts them, you know, suggests that may have been a possibility. Um, he also uh, was was frail um, and uh, had lost uh, a lung um, in uh, in in battle uh, in this in the Civil War, um, and so he you know had a lot of physical ailments um, and. Um, connected to that probably because of the rejection of his wife and the difficulty in struggling to be the kind of husband that um, she wanted um, and to have the kind of wife that he wanted. Um, I think that took an emotional toll on him. Max suggests as much uh, also in his writing. Um, and so he had, you know, a series of, of breakdowns where he went to sanatoriums and, and recovered and then returned to the family. Um, still with all of that um, from you know, everybody's, uh, you know, from everybody's memories, everything that I could get a hold of in researching the book, um, you know, Samuel Eastman was a quiet pillar of strength uh, in his daughter's life. When it came down to it, um, he stood up for her. He stood up for her feminist ways. Sometimes when her own mother, um, her beloved mother, was less comfortable with her more, you know, kind of radical actions in the community and um, her, you know, her refusal to wear a traditional binding swimming costume, for example, um, when they were, you know, when they were upstate in their summer place. And um, he stood up for her despite the disapproval of the neighbors. Um, to, you know, be able to live as she wanted and enjoy the freedoms um, that, that he had and he recognized that he had uh, in his life. Now, the, the thing that was really strange about this family, because Anise, Anise, her mother, was such a strong figure. It wasn't just that she was a strong figure in terms of ideas and action. There was a, a very tight emotional bond between her mother uh, Crystal Eastman, and then her brother, Max Eastman, there was kind of this triangle going on there. Yes. Of a, a family, it's almost like it was enmeshment of some sort. I mean, I'm do, I'm using a modern psychological, you know, uh, analysis of this, but uh, it was a very kind of odd uh, emotional bond. Can you talk about that, those three together? And, and of course, the father's kind of outside that triangle. Can you talk about that? Yes, absolutely. Um, they had a very, you're so right, they had a very complex emotional relationship. Um, Crystal, uh, Max, and Annis uh, were this kind of inner triangle, inner core um, uh, of the family. And that was a, you know, a grouping that um, Annis, you know, really created and reinforced. Um, it's very apparent in her letters um, with both both children, both Crystal and Max, um, the you know the ways that she expected them and wanted them to not only um, be close to her and stay close to her, but also to stay close to and take care of each other. Um, and um, while Annis was alive, they had they formed this kind of tight inner core, and everyone else in the family rotated um, around it. And you know they, they were kind of satellites, really. You know it was not just. Crystal's father, Sam, who was in the outskirts um, of the family, but also her elder brother, uh, Anstice, who later in his life went by the name Ford, um, his mother's middle name, which is interesting. But he, too, um, you know, had, uh, you know, struggled to relate to his mother, struggled to maintain his mother's love, um, and was, you know, was uh, was often um, sort of banished to the outskirts of the family. 
um, that inner triangle, you know, you, you used, I think, some modern psychological terms rightly. Uh, Max himself, you know, refer, refers to the incest taboo when he thinks and when he talks about um, his mother and particularly his sister um, and how, you know, in his experience of all the, you know, as he says, the, you know, kind of plain and fancy notions that Freud had, the incest taboo uh, makes the most sense to him in his own experience. Um, that in many ways, you know, he and his mother and sister were a love triangle. Uh, and when um, their mother passed away in 1911, Max and Crystal, be, you know, had a lot of kind of charged um, romantic interactions and a lot of blurring um, of their different roles to each other. You know, certainly um, they were a very, very, very close brother and sister, um, but they also, there was a lot of romantic and even sexual valence uh, in their letters to each other and in their relationship to each other, um, as well as a kind of, um, they would draw closer to, to each other and then Often something would happen and Max particularly would pull away, but then he would come back um, and pull away. Um, there was just a lot of tension um, from, I think, those, you know, kind of romantic sparks um, that they never really came to terms with, um, you know, in, 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 their, uh, in, in their emotional lives. Um, but it bonded them and, and kept them unusually close throughout their lives. They worked together a lot. They lived near each other um, as often as they possibly could. When they weren't living together, um, their letters, you know, reflect how much they missed each other. Um, it was a really uh, a, a very unusual relationship that um, not just you and not just me, but others who have written uh, particularly about Max have spent a great deal of time, you know, thinking about and talking about um, in terms of their, their romantic attachment between brother and sister, or the romantic aspects of the attachment between brother and sister. Um, and also, you know, some have theorized that uh, part of the reason that Max uh, may have um, become an apostate and become a you know uh, such a a, a right wing uh, figure later late in his life he was a um, a, a member of the John Birch Society um, you know had to do with the kind of loss of Crystal and the loss of that sort of North Star that he found in her in so many different ways. Okay, let me let's go on to talk about. The concept or the idea that you present of mother worship that is appropriate to this scenario, what is what is the idea of mother worship and how does Anis fit, fit into this, her mother fit into this? Well, I mean, Crystal idolized her mother. She did worship her mother. She, you know, she wanted to be like her. She looked up to her um, incredibly. Um, she had a kind of passionate devotion to her and and to her health and stability. Um, and, you know, likewise, uh, to a certain extent, Annis also deified her daughter, um, particularly in, um, in kind of an, an emotional dynamic between them. Annis Eastman was a, a, a manic depressive. Uh, and she would, you know, um, she had, you know, many of the characteristics that we, you know, think about today with, you know, sort of manic depressive geniuses. She had these glittering moments of, of, of eloquence and inspiration. Um, and then she would, you know, kind of unaccountably with very little warning sink into the darkest depths of self-doubt. And, you know, through those episodes, um, it was mainly Crystal who not only stepped in to try to rescue her, to try to kind of pull her back to stability, but who Annis repeatedly said in her letters and in their interactions, you know, she repeatedly said that Crystal was the only one 
who could do so. You know, that there was something innate to Crystal's being and to their relationship to each other that, you know, gave Crystal a, you know, a, a particular, you know, talismanic or uh, power to, um, to lift Annis out of those dark depths, to rescue her, to save her. Um, and that's a, that's a, that's a really heavy burden for a child to carry. Yes, ma'am. It certainly is. And I, I think that, um, I, you know, I, I write, uh, you know, in the first chapter of the book, um, about the ways that, uh, I think it sort of established for, you know, Crystal's radical sensibility and many of the best and worst qualities that she had. Um, you know, the best qualities in, in that she was always an idealist. She, you know, she was always, um, you know, as 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 a feminist and as a as a reformer and um, as a radical, she you know she would not stop um, in you know in attempting to make the world a better, finer place. Um, she you know she spoke up, she stood up um, always you know throughout her life. Um, on the other hand, she struggled with some of her interpersonal relationships. And a lot of the book is about the ways that she worked institutionally, um, working across different movements and with different major, major figures, many of whom were women leaders. And she often struggled with, you know, with boundaries and restraint. She often struggled with um, the ability to, uh, you know, to if, if there was disagreement, um, to come to some compromises uh, with them. Uh, instead, you know, she learned from her mother and from the experience of trying to draw her mother out of these depths that if there was a problem, the thing she should do is pour herself more fully, you know, more intensely into that breach um, in, in, you know, in order to, you know, kind of rescue the situation that way. Um, and, you know, in many cases, I think that was, you know, was not successful in her relationships. And it, you know, it, it made a number of her um, already, um, you know, kind of challenging relationships at times within organizations um, that much more difficult. The, uh, now, with all this closeness to her mother, she was her 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 generation of women were very different from her mother's generation, and so I want to talk. Let's talk a little bit about uh, the difference uh, that actually caused tension between her mother and herself. You know, one of them was where she, when she where she was going to go to college. That became a big scene. Uh, can you talk? Can you talk a little bit about her generation of women and the women she that she, she associated with, like Florence Kelly and. Lillian Wald and Alice Paul and Margaret Sanger, women that she came across with, that she worked with, that she joined in different movements, and how were they different from the previous generation of, of women that we would call feminist or pro-women women? Yeah, it's it's such you know all of these women's lives were so fascinating, and the intersections between them, um, both generationally and and politically and in other ways, are you know are just you know that's why there's such a rich literature you know in intellectual history and women's history and other areas um, on these movements and on these leaders. Um, Crystal knew you know everybody, I and mean, she really um, worked across multiple movements and worked with so many major giants and and, and icons of her time, um, and. You know, her generation um, of sort of modern young women was the, you know, really the first to cross over into the 20th century, to come of age in the 20th century. Um, and they were, you know, the first generation where a larger number of women were going on to college and were able to um, step out into the public space to have careers, many of them um, in, you know, sort of public work and community work. Um, and so that 
you know, separated her generation in many ways from their mothers or from the, you know, from the previous generation. Um, even some of those um, who were activist women, who were suffrage leaders, for example, or settlement house leaders um, as well, you know, women like uh, Wald or Kelly, who were a bit older and came of age with a, a different set of values and, you know, making a, a kind of a, a different, a different equation, I guess, um, uh, between their their gender and the way that they used and presented and lived their gender um, and their public lives. Um, Crystal's generation, you know, at least her friends, you know, her, you know, kind of New York educated activist friends um, were more outspoken. And um, we today we would we would call them, you know, fierce, right? They were fierce kind of in your face activists um, in a way that um, many of the of the older, more senior, more experienced women um, were often, you know, less comfortable with. Um, And so there were a lot of kind of interesting tensions and stories there, um, not only between, you know, Crystal and some of these uh, elders, um, but also, you know, many of her, you know, kind of generational cohort, you know, Alice Paul and Lucy Burns, um, Inez Mulholland, you know, numbers of other activist women who were her close, close friends um, in that modern generation. How do, uh, how, how do you think that uh, she, after she came out of college, she went and worked at the Greenwich House Settlement. She was in a settlement situation how did these early years, our college years, and right after college, how did those years shape her, her political uh, views? Um, I think they shaped both her political views and her kind of social, you know, her her social views, her social optimism. Um, working at Greenwich House Settlement, you, you know, was part of a, you know, kind of three things were happening when she when she lived there. One, she was living in the Greenwich House Settlement, um, downtown Lower Manhattan, you know, in a sort of bohemian, um, greater setting, um, but also, you know, in neighborhoods with like all the settlement houses, you know, lots of immigrants, lots of poverty, um, and, you know, living, you know, really with and amongst um, these communities of people um, was, a, you know, important part of the settlement house movement and an important part of, of Chris forming Crystal's mentality about, about social action and her leftist uh, politics. At the same time, she was living at Greenwich House Settlement because she was going to NYU Law School. Um, she was one of a, you know, a kind of relatively early cohort um, of women um, who were becoming lawyers. Um, and NYU was, was at that time a haven for young women who wanted to go to law school. Many other law schools would not uh, accept women at all. Um, you know, at the time, the, you know, the dean of, of, of Columbia Law School, you know, famously said that, you know, kind of expressed over my dead body, basically, you know, women will come here. Um, and so it was really a hotbed of, you know, really smart, um, activist, young women lawyers. Um, and that too, you know, kind of changed her life, changed her outlook. Crystal always wanted to practice law. And the law was um, more forbidding, uh, had, you know, greater barriers to women's entry than many other of the, you know, kind of educated professions that began opening to women at that time. Um, And she was never able to find uh, a job practicing law. But in all of her, uh, or in many of her um, social activist 
roles and many of the movements that which she was involved in, she often relied on the courts and thought about the courts and conceptualized actions in terms of, you know, creating test cases that the organization could then take um, into the into the justice system. Um, she was a you know a big advocate of that within the um, the, the the forerunner to the ACLU, um, and that you know of course became a you know a. a a, a real mode of modus operandi uh, for the organization from very early on. So she also um, had that. And then, you know, around it all was the Greenwich Village kind of bohemian um, arena. She, in those days, the subway didn't yet reach Greenwich Village. So, it, you know, P, there was a, a street life and a kind of seclusion, a, a kind of teeming seclusion, if you will. Um, there were, you know, lots of people and lots to think about um, and lots of um, activism uh, and activity from all kinds of different people, lots of diversity. Um, at the same time as there was also a, you know, a kind of communal community sense um, and opportunities for social experimentation romantic, sexual experimentation, political experimentation, conversation, um, you know, kind of salons and other kind of public meetings, um, artistic experimentation. Um, and so those three things together, you know, I think opened her up to the sense of, you know, a virtually endless possibility um, that, you know, often is associated with particularly New York City, but some other parts um, of the country and around the world um, in the, you know, kind of early modern era, pre-World pre War One. Um, and, you know, those kinds of things, she never really let go of that energy and that optimism and that sense of possibility. Um, and all three of those kind of combined and cross-fertilized to, to, you know, create that and reinforce that um, and, and, and bring, you know, embed that really in her, in her heart and in her soul. Well, one thing that was uh, I noticed in throughout the book was that she never landed on anything for very long. She was involved in so many things like labor, women's rights, birth control, pacifism, civil liberties. I mean, she every issue of the day she had somehow touched, but she never really like stayed with anything for very long in her writing or in her work. And she always had this kind of precarious economic situation because she's always looking for how can she make you know, a living uh, pursuing her writing or her activism. So what got it, and you call her an intersectional thinker. Can you talk about what, what was getting in her way of actually making a commitment to one thing, like Alice Paul, for instance, or Margaret Sanger, they, they committed to one particular issue. She just didn't seem to be able to do that. Yeah, you, you know that is, I think as I as I write in the book, that was really a defining characteristic of hers. That um, Crystal Eastman, I see her as an early intersectional activist, um, in that she, you know, tried to bridge multiple movements. She tried to and wanted to bring multiple movements together under one really vast emancipatory rubric. Um, and so she, you know, she talked to the members of one movement. She, you know, talked to feminists, for example, about um, about socialism and about internationalism, also about family, about maternalism, um, things that, you know, other activists um, didn't necessarily talk about, you know, the things that Alice Paul, for example, who was, you know, kind of very single 
single-minded. Um, you know, that was just to her, those were distractions, you know, that was off the agenda. Um, you know, but when she was in amongst socialists or amongst internationalists, she talked about feminism and, you know, brought these other dimensions to those movements. Um, and so she was always trying to build bridges and, you know, create linkages amongst all these leftist movements. Um, and, you know, that's part of the reason why she moved from one movement to the next was that she could see those connections. Um, and, you know, other circumstances, of course, collaborated to help her, you know, to help her, um, to encourage her, I suppose, to move from one to the next, you know, historical events, things changed in the movements and in the country and in the world. Um, but she could see those threads um, and, you know, was always keeping, you know, kind of all of them in mind. Um, and so that enabled her um, to, to see pathways from one movement to the next uh, across her life. Um, at the same time, you know, because of that, you're, you're absolutely right that she, you know, she, she did have a very kind of episodic life. Um, there, you know, the, the different chapters of the book and book in many ways, um, you know, do outline an arc of an experience with one movement and then the next, and then the next, um, you know, but a I lot think, of, I think, I think Amy, I wanted to say that I think that's probably the reason why we have not heard that much about her. Absolutely. Because, because we tend to hear about people like, like for instance, like a Margaret Sanger, you know, who committed to a one thing, and she was that one thing for, you know, decades. And therefore, she was able to, you know, be known for that. And I think with Crystal, because she was doing so many different things, she doesn't register as strongly historically. Absolutely. I, I absolutely agree with you. And in fact, that's basically the, you know, the, the, the thesis of the book, you know, if there is a, a thesis to a biography, my understanding of her life, I absolutely agree with you, um, is that that is the reason that she kind of slipped through the, the grid or the main planks of historical memory. Um, you know, we, we remember people, we understand people, and we, we structure narratives, whether they're historical narratives or biographical narratives. We do our research, you know, based on, you know, locating people in a particular place. And that, you know, has to do with locating them within a movement, locating them with institutional, uh, with institutions, locating them with particular mentors or particular allies or particular um, sets of beliefs. Um, and, you know, Crystal did not rest with one institution or one set of allies um, or one set of mentors. Um, she always was trying to bring one group into contact with the next. Um, and uh, as a consequence, she does appear, you know, in a lot of the narratives that that have she she appears in histories and and biographies, you know, other kinds of narratives as this momentary, you know, as a glimpse, as a walk on, as a cameo um, in all of these organizations or many of them in which you know she had a very significant role to play, um, but. You know, because she was always sort of straddling more than one thing um, and making connections that um, were sort of transgressive to, in some ways, the, the internal leadership structure of, the, uh, of an organization or of a movement, um, she, you know, she, she, see, she, she gets pushed to the margins or she falls out of the story um, or becomes a minor player you know, gets seen visible as a, as a bit player, even though she may have had a very significant role actually in that organization and in some cases actually founded the organizations and helped to lead those organizations. Um, but she was lost for to history, uh, to those, to the, the memories and the, the histories of those organizations 
in, you know, in part because she just fell through the cracks. Um, many of the other women that we know today, um, many of the women that she worked very closely with, um, we, you know, we know because, as you say, they, you know, they're like Alice Paul. It was associated with the National Women's Party and the suffrage movement. Right? Margaret Sanger was associated with with birth control and the and the, and the rise of Planned Parenthood. Um, you know, other colleagues uh, of Crystal's, you know, were also, you know, in the peace movement, for example. We, you know, we know them, we remember them because they stayed more or less in one place. They centered themselves primarily in one movement. Crystal did not do that, you know, but she, you know, she really has an institutional legacy in multiple organizations, the National Women's Party and the Women's, Inter- Women's International League for Peace and Freedom and the ACLU and the labor movement. She, you know, she drafted the first series workers' compensation law. She left us an enormous institutional uh, inheritance. Now, but- so she, she's, a, she's a very, uh, what I would call a restless person, activist, because I think I think a lot of people feel this way, and I think she's kind of in a way comforting because there's a lot of of people who feel like, oh my gosh, there's so many issues and they're all important. And to commit to one at the exclusion of another doesn't seem to make any sense. So there are people who have, who can see how all these things have to work together. If you're working you know, against poverty, you also have to be working for women's rights and you have to work for the workplace rights. And then you have, you know, there's so many things that they're all interconnected. And I think she did understand that every one of the issues of her time were interconnected, that nothing could be solved without solving the whole thing. Yes, absolutely. And she, you know, she saw that very early on. One of the, you know, the first um, entries that she, uh, she was a graduate of of Vassar uh, class of 1903. And, you know, she occasionally, particularly in her early career, wrote back, you know, to her Vassar classmates. Um, And, you know, she wrote about, she envisioned herself when she was in law school, as as she said, one of those circus ladies who, you know, is, is riding, uh, you know, is, is, is is riding on a vehicle and holding aloft, you know, one set of, uh, of interests and one hand and one set of interests in the other and trying to steer, you know, steer this vehicle ahead, you know, in her life. Um, and she, you know, she saw those interconnections and, 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 and thought that you couldn't solve one problem, as you say, without solving all of the others. Um, and she really tried to do that in her career. Um, but, you know, that kind of cross movement uh, work, uh, especially when it's consistent across a life and when it's cross movements all of which are, you know, are, are, are radical, basically, are, you know, are leftist movements um, and uh, are, you know, are, are, are critiquing the mainstream and the status quo and the power structure um, makes your life, you know, kind of redoubles how precarious um, your, your, uh, your position in society is, right? You're, the way that you can be seen by historians and by, you know, and by others at the time uh, of her life. Um, and also kind of positioned her, positions one, to become a bit of a critic from within those organizations, right? That, you know, if, she, if, you, if you talk to feminists about socialism, right, or you talk to feminists about, you know, birth control and maternalism in a way that, um, you know, the organization and the movement was, you know, did not have in the foreground at that time, um, you know, it, it makes your position also precarious within an organization, 
um, and within a movement. And I think that, you know, one of the lessons, one of the interesting dilemmas and, and problems and, and, you know, the, one of the things that's most thought provoking about her is what she can tell us, I think, about the positions of, of intersectional activists today, you know, how we, you know, can build those bridges between movements, how we can make common cause, and how we can also understand and, and, and rethink um, our organizational activism to take in different points of view um, and, and not have to either, you know, marginalize them um, or, or reject them in some ways in order to, um, you know, in order to maintain our own coherence and our, our own forward momentum. Okay. I want to move on to, to talk about her personal life. She, she was looking, she married a Traditionally, in a traditional scheme, she married late. She, she was looking for a particular kind of marriage, which was a, she was redefining marriage for herself. She was redefining motherhood with her own children for herself and how a household should be run. Uh, can you talk about a little bit about uh, that? And also, she was first, first married to Wallace Benedict. It didn't last long. He was an insurance salesman, I think. Yes. And, uh, and then she, she married Walter Fuller, who apparently pretty much went along with her vision of how their family should be structured. So can you talk about all that, that whole thing there? Sure. Yeah, that, it's one of my favorite topics. You know, Crystal was was you know was was innovative and experimental um, and and brave. I think on on the the front, the private life front, um, as much or more so even, um, than her, uh, in her, her public politics. Um, she was, you know, more rare in her time at, you know, at, at searching for a balance between work and family and at, at arguing for and trying to bring feminist into the pri- feminism into the private sphere, um, and not merely focus on, you know, what it meant for women in the public, not to neglect the public. Certainly, you know, she's been credited as a co-author of the equal rights amendment. Um, she, you know, she, she cared about the public and equality in the public sphere, but, um, she wanted both and she wrote about both and she herself experimented in ways to try to make to create a feminist family. Um, uh, you know, her second marriage to Walter Fuller um, was the one that produced her two children and some of the most intense experimentation and, um, uh, you know, and the most intense dilemmas, you know, occurred there. Um, she always wanted children. Um, at one point in an unpublished manuscript, she uh, actually wrote that she wanted children even more than a public life, even more than a career. Um, later, she, you know, revised the piece and, you know, brought the two into balance that she wanted them equally. Um, but, uh, you know, certainly having children was always a very high priority for her, something she felt she always wanted. She wanted to be um, a mother like her mother. Um, and so she, you know, tried a, a wide variety of reasons, to uh, ways to take the compulsion out of the the gender roles in the family, you know, to to not force her husband to be the breadwinner, but instead to share breadwinning, um, to try to, she argued for, she was a little less successful at this, um, but she strongly argued for bringing men, bringing husbands, bringing fathers into the family to share housework and childcare as well. Um, she persistently argued that you know, male children and female children should both be raised to understand the fundamentals of housekeeping as well as the fundamentals of what it takes to have a career and to and to uh, support 
support yourself financially, that both must learn how to do both. Um, and that's what she tried to do, you know, in her own marriage and family, um, even though, you know, she was raised to it to some degree, you know, by all the sharing and experiments that um, her mother particularly engineered, you know, when she was growing up. Um, but, um, you know, she certainly didn't have the kind of education and the broad-based cultural support of those ideas that she advocated for her own children and, and try, tried to create in her own household for them. Now, the thing about that, that was interesting to me was that her, her feminist friends, her connections were very uh, committed and focused on political rights. And they, to them, marriage and motherhood was something uh, maybe it's a, the best to be tolerated, but not, uh, they had no real vision of remaking it because it's almost like it was irredeemable. But she insisted that marriage and motherhood could be remade in a feminist fashion while her friends were like, well, we, we're going to work on, we're going to work on equal rights for women. Is that, there seems to be this She's breaking, I think, with some of more radical friends on this. Yes, I, I think you're right. And certainly, you know, I write quite a bit about this in the book that she was, you know, not alone, but she was she was rare in, um, you know, in, in, in encouraging, in advocating, in making proposals, in writing about the ways that feminism not only, you know, could um, or should be a part, you know, come into the family, as it were, you know, come into the pri- come into private life. But she said it must do so. Um, that you know, she she felt that this was the place where most women, um, you know, at least when it came to motherhood, most women, she said, wanted to be mothers, wanted to have children. Um, and she said, you know, if feminism falls to pieces at the arrival of the first baby, it is false and useless. Um, that, you know, public rights obviously were extremely important to her. She never backed down off of that. But she also wanted, you know, a, a feminist understanding and a transformation of um, family life um, and of marriage so that it would be between equals, so that men and women, you know, in families, in households could both develop to their fullest potential, could both become themselves um, in the most authentic way. Um, and she emphasized a lot in her writing that, it was important, you know, to 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 have the household become a feminist space because that is where, you know, where where gender inequality is, you know, not merely, you know, kind of exercised, but it's also born and raised. That this is where children learn what it means to be an adult, what it means to be a father, what it means to be a mother. Um, and, you know, she wanted um, the, you know, the, the kind of equal sharing and a feminist vision of the world um, in many ways to be able to begin and or certainly to be reproduced um, within the private life of the family. And, and, and she thought that since most women um, wanted to have children, that this was a way that feminism could touch the lives of virtually, you know, of almost all women. Um, not all women, you know, in her time or today, you know, really wanted to have a career or wanted to have, um, you know, a, be be an activist or, you know, work in, you know, in a, in a social change organization um, like her peers uh, did and like she herself did. Um, but she felt that, you know, most women wanted to have a family. 
Um, and if feminism could reach them there, that was a way for feminism to rally virtually all women to the movement, all women to a new way of life, all women to um, the, you know, the, the rights and opportunities that, you know, of course, she felt she believed they deserved. Now, she, she and her husband, Walter, lived and they had a two household situation for, for quite a long time. Can you talk about it was transatlantic? Can you, can you talk about that? Yes. Yeah. It was one of her, probably her most longstanding experiment, ultimately. Um, And she wrote a very important article in 1923 in Cosmopolitan called Marriage Under Two Roofs, um, in which she described the relationship and described the the structural setup um, and the ways that, as she argued, it promoted not only equality between the partners, um, but a better marriage, you know, greater happiness um, for the partners, both because they had greater autonomy, they had greater equality, they could become themselves, they had time to themselves, um, uh, as well as time that they chose to be together. Um, but she also said it made their sex lives better. It made, you know, for a better romantic, more authentic experience of romantic love. So, um, yeah, go uh, describe that for, for the listener, the two, they actually lived in two different places with the children she was, the children were mostly with her. Yes, the children were 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 full time with her. Um, it was it, um, it was transatlantic to the se- in the sense that um, in the later years of her life, her her husband Walter Fuller uh, was English, um, and uh, he had uh, at at one point returned uh, after the war had returned uh, to England to live, um, and for a while she stayed in New York um, with the children. Um, but eventually, you know, they found, she particularly found um, that she wanted to bring the family back together again. She didn't want to be away from her husband and she didn't want her children to be away from their father. Um, and so they developed, first she tried living um, nearby elsewhere in Europe. Um, it was cheaper to live uh, in Germany, for example. And so she tried um, to live there for a while uh, with, you know, greater proximity to London. Um, once she'd had her second child, um, she that you know, brief time allowed her to stay home for a little bit um, with her her daughter, her second child, and not have to work and still have access to, you know, getting to London. Um, but that didn't really pan out. It didn't really work for them um, after just a few months. Um, so she came back to New York and then um, another uh, year, almost a year later, um, she moved to London, but in a different household, lived in a different household um, than her husband. They had a rented house uh, in Northwest London, she and the two children, um, and her husband lived nearby. He was, you know, he was a boarder. He rented a room from some mutual friends of theirs uh, from the from the peace movement. Um, who also had a family and, you know, rented out uh, a room to Walter. Um, and so, you know, she, they, um, they saw each other frequently, um, but they, but always, as she writes about in this article, Marriage Under Two Roofs, always by choice, you know, some nights they didn't see each other at all. Sometimes they would see each other and have dinner together and have an evening together or make a plan together um, and, uh, you know, and not spend the night together and, you know, separate. Other times they would decide to. Um, and either way, she described that, you know, the, the choices, um, the lack of compulsion for both partners, um, you know, made all the difference to them. On the other hand, it was really interesting. Go ahead. Go ahead. I was just going to say that, you know, on the other hand, in, you know, in practice for all the ways that it worked to improve the marriage, improve the relationship between the, you know, the man and the woman, um, it provided, it created a lot of extra burdens on um, Crystal as it basically turned her into a single parent um, in terms of the children. 
she made all the decisions in the household, you know, all the, you know, went to all the teacher meetings and handled all the homework and, you know, all the, you know, um, the day to day child rearing and child care, um, you know, for, for both children. Um, and, that was something that she wanted. She, you know, she really wanted something more like her own mother, you know, with, you know, a kind of peripheral father figure. Um, but it took a toll on her. And she often wrote about how difficult it was to try to earn a living um, and also really have sole, sole charge um, of the children. Um, her husband, Walter, um, contributed to the family finances on a more or less voluntary basis. That was part of the, you know, the lack of compulsion um, and, um, he, you know, sometimes, uh, earned enough money to contribute, um, and other times did not. Uh, and so they were always in financial straits. Um, and she was, you know, always stressed with balancing work and family all by herself. Wow. Now the, she, she continues on with, uh, fi- uh, with her brother to, uh, be the founder or the co-founder of the Liberator, the radical paper. And she, there also finds another opportunity to create a, a, a communal living situation. Can you talk about how she's, she's now trying to do, I think, what her mother had uh, tried to do before? Can you talk about that? It's enough, these all experiments in how to live a differently in a different way. Yes. They're all really experiments with extended family or with families of choice. <laughs> um, the, you know, the particular communal living situation, you know, you're referring to was in Greenwich Village um, when they you know, they had a collective household where her brother, she was always trying to live with or near her brother. Uh, and, you know, he, for the most part, with or near her. Um, and they, you know, it has a, a mixed house with, um, with some friends. Um, they, they collectively paid to um, hire someone to help with the cooking um, and the cleaning so that they all, men and women, you know, could pursue their different uh, careers um, and, you know, kind of share a communal living space and share the the burdens of maintaining uh, a household. So it wouldn't fall on any one couple or any one person and certainly not on the women in the group. Um, in Greenwich Village, as it turned out, um, Crystal and her husband, Walter, actually ended up living up the street from that house, not in the house itself, but she, um, they, they joined them for meals. So they all had their, you know, their collective meals um, together, including her. She had a similar setup. Um, she uh, owned, she and Max each owned homes in um, Croton on Hudson uh, in Westchester County in New York. And um, they had a kind of artist's colony there, a, a community also of friends, um, each, you know, with their own residences. And they didn't have a, a collective kitchen in the same way that she had growing up in Glenora or um, a collective um, hiring of someone the way they did in Greenwich Village at the time. But they shared a lot of meals and informally, you know, collaborated on, you know, lightening everyone's burdens um, and also having more time to enjoy each other, more leisure time to spend together. Um, for Crystal, one of the other families uh, there was uh, Margaret uh, and her, her husband, Dan uh, Lane, who had also uh, two children. And so um, there was a, you know, a kind of informal collective, an, an informal, you know, village, if you will, to raise her children. Um, and that, you know, was very important to her also in this period of time. When she and Max were publishing The Liberator, she already had her first child. And by the end of The Liberator years, when she and Max um, you know, uh, uh, handed off the liberator um, to uh, other owners. Um, they she was was pregnant with her with her second child with her daughter. 
Um, so these were early child rearing years for her. And that had a lot to do with um, the, the utility and the importance of forming these collectives um, everywhere she lived. You know, it, it, it takes a village to raise a child. And she she tried to create those villages around her um, in order to do that and still, you know, maintain her work at the Liberator, maintain her career. Okay, so I have a final question for you is, what does uh, Crystal Eastman offer the contemporary reader? What can What's the takeaway? What did we get from her? Boy, um, so much. I, I personally have gotten so much, you know, from my relationship with her and from learning about her and thinking about her ideas and listening to her. Um, you know, she provides the, you know, kind of some very contemporary uh, ideas and and um, on issues that are still pressing and still, you know, up for debate, very much up for debate. Uh, today, you know, she she talked about and advocated for you know reproductive rights and for you know wages for wives and for work family balance and for the equal rights amendment and um, you know for uh, you know uh, uh, different kinds of education to promote equality between men and women for different kinds of laws to promote and reinforce um, equality between men and women for paid parental leave like a whole range of issues that still more than a century later are, you know, are on our activist agenda, are on our public agenda. Um, and so she, you know, she provides a lot of insight, um, not only into the history of those, um, those movements and those ideas, um, those, uh, you know, and some kind of roads not taken in, in pursuing them, um, but also, you know, gives us a, a sense of the, of greater, I think, urgency that, you know, after all this time, you know, we, we, we must finally, you know, cross Cross the bridge. We must finally achieve some of those things. Um, I think she also gives us a lot to think about in terms of the, you know, the sort of the, the intersectional questions. Um, you know, how we deal with differences amongst, you know, amongst our allies. You know, what, you know, how do we come together around common cause? Um, some of the ways, some of the reasons that I think Crystal Eastman was you know, has been, has been lost or obscured to historical memory, you know, te- you know, create a mandate for us to think about, you know, going forward, you know, how we're going to do a better job of, you know, of understanding our differences, of confronting them, of, you know, embracing them, of working with them, of, of really forming authentic bonds among allies so that we can move forward strongly and together um, to achieve uh, progressive goals. And, it seems to me that, that, you know, particularly these days, you know, both of those lessons, both of those kind of sets of questions and ideas that she gives us, you know, couldn't be more relevant. It's, it's, it's as though we, you know, we, we just need her so much right now, um, in my view. And she has an awful lot. She always had a lot to say. Um, and she gives us so much to think about um, sort of in, in, in both, both of those ways, both our our activist ways and our, our the ways that our movements move forward and the ideas, the agenda um, that we have. Well, thank you, Amy. Thank you so much. Thank you. And, and thank you to our listeners for tuning in to another edition of New Books and Gender Studies. This is your host, Lillian Barger.